We are, as I said, in 1 Peter, so I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you, possibly, and you can pick one of those up and turn to page 1014, and that will bring you to uh, that section of God's Word. I titled the message, as you might see in your bulletin, Chosen Aliens. Chosen aliens. I have no idea what you might be thinking about that. I find it uh, fascinating that our world, or some in our world, are, are absolutely obsessed with finding aliens. Extraterrestrial life. Well, beloved, um, they don't actually need to look any further. Aliens already exist among them. And we will talk more about that as we, just trying to uh, whet your appetite there, we'll talk more about that as we look at the text. But last week I introduced you to First Peter, and we considered some facts about the book simply and some of its major themes. And you might remember those themes are primarily suffering, suffering, hope, our eternal hope, and then... Um, really holiness or the pursuit of doing what God has called us to do in this fallen world. One writer put it like this, I mentioned this last week, the purpose of this letter is to encourage believers to stand fast while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. This indeed, beloved, is a, uh, an evil age, is it not? It's been that way. Uh, since the coming of Christ, and we are living in it today. But right now, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the book, and we're going to look at the first two verses. And as I said last week, the opening of the letter, as was customary, begins by introducing the writer, the author, that is, of the, of the letter, Peter, and then it addresses the readers. What we're going to do today is we're just going to focus in on the readers, okay, the readers, so, if you would, let your eyes glance down at the Word of God in your lap, and in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, I'll read that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, beloved, listen. Peter uh, could have said, simply said this in his opening. He could have simply said to the Christians or maybe saints, that word is used of Christians, who are in Pontus, Galatia, etc., right? He could have just been real plain Jane about it, just address those folks, but and he, but he didn't. He didn't do that. Rather, rather, he chose here, and there's a reason for it, but he chose here to initially describe his readers, not just as Christians, not just as saints, but as elect. Elect. But why might he do that? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, but first, let me talk a little bit about this term, elect. 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 
I dealt with the biblical doctrine of election that's in the, it's in the Bible, that we, and we, we did that when we went through, and maybe you remember if you were here, chapter 9 of the book of Romans. We actually did that in 2014, October, November of 2014. And if you were not here for that, what I would like to do is encourage you to go back and listen to those messages, because I'm probably going to say something today that if you hadn't heard those messages might cause you to ask some questions or have something to uh, think about. So it's available on our website, but I'm not going to cover everything concerning election. I, I did, a, a, I believe, a fairly decent job covering it there as it came up in the text. And it, there were three ser- sermons on it, it was, so when you're looking for it, it was God's Sovereign Choice, and then I did a two-parter called God's Sovereign Choice Defended, okay? And we just drew it right out of Romans, so it's there for you. But beloved, let me say this, to be elect is really a, a most incredible and blessed thing. And Peter's readers are not the only one who, ones who are elect, but every true believer, every child of God, every genuine follower of Jesus Christ is elect, is elect. Now, the Greek word translated elect in the ESV can also be translated chosen, chosen. Christians are people who have been chosen. Your translation may say that. Chosen by who, you ask? Chosen for what? Those are great questions, beloved. Great questions. Let's see if we can answer those. We'll look back at the text. But first, let me show you a few other translations, as I was mentioning the word chosen, of this particular passage. First, the New American Standard Bible, great translation of the Bible. There it says this, to those who reside, very similar, uh, as aliens. You see a different word there. To those who reside, I want to see if you can see the difference between this and the ESV. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. Okay, so a couple things before we move off this text. I just want you to notice some things. This is a different translation of the Bible. We use the English Standard Version here. Uh, You'll notice aliens is obviously a different word there. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, The ESV uses exiles. But do you notice that Not only is it not the word elect, it's chosen, which is a suitable word for that Greek word, but do you notice that it's moved in the sentence? In the ESV, it begins with, to those who are elect. Did you see that? Okay, I'm going to get to that in a second. Here's another translation of the Bible, very popular translation, good translation, NIV. There it says, to God's elect, so they add the word God, that's fine, um, and they keep it right there in the beginning of the sentence. They uh, define strangers and aliens as strangers, or sorry, exiles and aliens as strangers in the world. It's just one Greek word, but they're, that's how they're interpreting or translating it, that is. Scattered throughout the various cities. And then verse 2, who have been chosen. Okay? So the NIV keeps that word elect, although it, it keeps it as it is, elect. It keeps it in the beginning, but then it moves this statement here, and actually this statement uh, does not exist, it, but they move it here to verse 2, who have been chosen. Similarly to the NASB, who moves the word chosen or elect to verse 2. Okay, why? Why do the translations do that? 
By the way, I don't believe there's anything wrong with uh, what the translations have done, but I just want to point it out because it'll help you understand as we get into the text. Um, Look back at your Bibles. Look at verse 1 and 2, okay? The actual literal reading of the Greek text is captured here in the ESV. It is to those who are elect. It is the first word to describe the readers of 1 Peter, okay? And it can be chosen. That's fine. That's a great word as well. But in verse 2 then, do you see, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood? You see all those phrases? There's kind of three phrases there. Uh, It's generally accepted, and I accept it as well, is that those phrases are actually attached to the word elect. They're modifying the word elect, okay? So when Peter says, to those who are elect, and then goes on exiles of the dispersion, he comes back in verse 2 and now begins to explain that election according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And for that reason, translations who are trying to help you understand the text have chosen then to either move the word there, as we saw in the NASB, it just moves it further into verse 2, so it's very clear. Because as we saw in the NASB, it just says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So they basically remove all those words and the cities in between. They don't remove them, but they move the word to verse 2, so it's clear to you what they believe Peter is communicating, what I also believe, that those phrases in verse 2 are attached to... uh, the word elect, okay? So that's the, that's the reason, that, that's the reason sometimes you'll see for differences of translation. They're still tr- capturing all the words there, but they move them around a little bit so to make sure that you as a reader are understanding properly what the uh, writer intended. Now, since I believe that to be the case, that elect which is what Christians are, is being defined or further elaborated on in verse 2, then we could say this, the elect are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, guess what? I also covered the subject of God's foreknowledge in the book of Romans. Beloved, Romans, the reason I did it, it's foundational. It is, it is the gospel, and it is foundational, really, to the rest of the scriptures in, in many, many ways. So I would encourage you, if you haven't been here for the last three or so years as we went through the book, that you might start a regular routine of picking back up just wherever you, you know, left off and, and listen or didn't hear and pick up those uh, sermons from Romans. But I covered it, and I covered it in chapter 8. It was a two-part a sermon as well. It was entitled The Unbreakable Chain of Redemption. The Unbreakable Chain of Redemption. This morning, again, I'm not going to cover all of that, but I will remind you of uh, a few things I've previously said. So listen carefully. There are Christians uh, who understand, I am not one of them, and the elders here are not of this uh, thinking, but there are good Christians who understand the foreknowledge of God to mean that God simply sees things in advance or has knowledge of things uh, before they happen. And then based on that, they say that when it comes to the matter of election, 
or God's choice, that God looks into the future to see who will put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then he chooses them or elects them. Okay? I don't believe that's correct, beloved. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that believe that. I don't believe that is right. Now, while it is certainly true, and I covered that when we went through Romans, but while it is certainly true that God does indeed have knowledge of things before they happen, okay, that's for sure, that alone is an inadequate understanding of God's foreknowledge, of God's foreknowledge. His foreknowledge doesn't simply mean that he sees something uh, before, but rather that he, according to his sovereign purposes and plans, determines something before, or determines that something will be before it actually is, okay? And his plans never fail. So when Peter says that Christians are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it means that in the mind of God, he determined before they were ever born, before time even began, to make them elect. He chose them for himself. He chose them to be his precious children, and that can be said of every genuine believer in this room and in the world. He chose you. As it says in Ephesians 1, and again, not because he looked down the corridors of time and said, there's Jeremy, and I know someday he'll come to his senses and receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I don't believe that's it, for many reasons, because I never would have come to my senses without the saving, loving, sovereign care of my Savior who drew me to himself. No, God determined for his own reasons, not because I deserved it, not because I earned it, not because I would respond to him and and be a good little Christian, not for any of those reasons. He determined before the earth was even made that he would save me. Unbelievable. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, those similar ideas are communicated by the apostle Paul, and all he can do is, is cry out for praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, predetermined for us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
One writer says this concerning the matter of election and this passage in Peter. God's choice is part of his predetermined plan and is not based on any merit in those who are elected. It wasn't because you were special or you were going to do something special that God determined to save you. In fact, quite the opposite. But it is based solely, not on our merit, but on His grace and love for them before their creation. Beloved, the doctrine of election should elevate your hearts and minds before God to lay down on the ground in humility and cry out, praise the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father for redeeming me, for determining to save me out of this rebellious humanity. Now, beloved, there's mystery here. There's some mystery here. I've heard it expressed this way. We know the Bible says that, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord in saving faith, it says they will be saved. You got to do that. You, you got to call upon that. At some point, you got to come to a, a place in your life where you go, I need a savior because I'm a sinner and I'm guilty before a holy God. But the Bible says, if I will trust in the Lord Jesus, I will repent of my rebellion and sin against him and turn to the Lord. There, in Christ, I will find salvation. Okay? We know that's what the Word of God teaches. So some have said it's like this. On one side of the door of heaven, the side we walk through, it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you walk through that door, Christian. But on the other side, it says, Chosen before the foundation of the world. Further, just to continue to make this point, because some people still seem to be confused about it, in regard to God's foreknowledge, consider this, consider this, just from the text, a few verses later in the same book, Peter says this, let your eyes glance glance back down, in verse 18, knowing that you were, those Christians, ransomed his readers from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, we were singing about that this morning, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I read all that so you got the context. Verse 20, he, who's the he? Jesus. He was what? Foreknown. Same word, just the verb here. Foreknowledge, noun, foreknown. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or revealed in the last times for the sake of you, Christian. Okay? So what does Peter mean when he says Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times? Let me ask you a question. Does it simply mean that God knew about him before the world began and saw ahead of time that he was going to come and die for sinful men? Is that what it means? Is, is that what Peter's making sure we understand? Hey, just so you know, God knew Jesus was going to come. He, he knew him, you know, a long time ago before he ever came into the world, and he knew he was going to come and die for sinners. 
Or does it mean this? It doesn't mean that, by the way. Does it mean this, that God the Father determined, determined before the world was even made to send his Son into the world to redeem and regenerate from among sinful and rebellious humanity an undeserving people for his own possession? That is what it means. Consider Acts 2.23. There we read, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. One translation of the Bible puts the first part of verse 23 this way. It is fitting. Long ago, God planned that Jesus would be handed over to you. God planned it. He didn't, just, he didn't just see it happening and go, oh, look, I know about it. He determined, he actually planned for it to happen. That is the sense in which he foreknew Christ and his coming. And then one writer says this, actually the writer of the study Bibles, John MacArthur, that we um, encourage you to get here is a good study Bible. He says this, As we're looking at 1 Peter, Christians are foreknown for salvation in the same way Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world to be sacrificed for sins. It's the same, beloved. It's in the same chapter. So if I have to, if in my mind I'm saying, well, foreknown just means he looks down the corridors of time and he he sees what's happening because he knows, you know. And that's what it means to be the elect of God. Then you have to apply that same understanding to God foreknowing Christ. And that makes no sense. What makes sense is that God determined to save a people for himself, and God determined to save those people by sending his son into the world according to his gracious, merciful, and loving plan. Beloved, God the Father determines things to be so. All right? That's how it works. All according to to his purposes and nothing else. He planned for Christ to come and sent him into the world and determined to save a people for himself through his son. And I, and by the way, you know who those people are? The elect. That's who they are. The Bible refers to them over and over again. It's the elect. And if you are here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a lover of the Lord, you have this incredible title to apply to yourself. Elect chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And I've recommended this book before, but I'm going to do it again when I was in the series in Romans. It's called, because I may have stirred some questions in your mind, or I hope I did. I hope I did. And uh, I hope you'll continue to look at this beautiful doctrine of the Word of God, but it's called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Fantastic resource for trying to understand those things further. Now, Elect. We'll get back to that. Looking back at our text, so after Peter says that the readers were elect according to the foreknowledge of God, he adds that they were also elect then, understanding verse 2 to be applying, or the phrases there to be speaking of election. They are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. That's the next phrase. Or you could say it this way, or by or through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's how the New American Standard Bible and NIV translates that. So, 
How are we to understand that phrase? Well, I understand this to be referring to the initial stage of our sanctification, the initial stage of our sanctification. And um, I say initial because we've talked a lot about in Romans about the progressive stage of sanctification. That's where God is working in you and through you and through the Spirit to basically make you more holy, set you apart unto himself, and to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, his righteous son. That's progressive sanctification. There's also a, a final stage where we will be fully like Christ, glorified. Okay? But there's also an initial stage of sanctification. And uh, that is the divine work of the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. When you are saved, when you are born again, when you... Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And at that point, the Holy Spirit sanctifies the believer or sets them apart to God. How does he do that? Well, he does that by giving us spiritual life and spiritually uniting us or joining us to Jesus Christ, thereby making us the blessed recipients of all the wonderful benefits of Christ's saving and redeeming work, which, because of our saving position in Christ, includes, beloved, not only our justification being declared right before God, forgiven of all of our sins and credited with the righteousness of Christ, but also freeing us forever from God's condemnation. And in addition to that, rescuing us from the binding power and authority of sin over our lives. And beloved, I addressed all that in Romans chapter 8 as well, a pastor, a sermon called Life in the Spirit. I encourage you maybe to go back and look at that too. One writer says concerning this sanctifying work of the Spirit in regard to our election, he says this, the outworking of God's choice of the elect made in eternity past, before time began, begins in time, that's where we live, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The sanctifying work encompasses all that the Spirit produces in salvation. That is faith, repentance, regeneration, and adoption. Thus, election becomes a reality in the life of the believer through salvation, the work of God, which the Holy Spirit carries out. Yeah, bingo, exactly. So, beloved, before you came to faith in Christ, you were still elect in the mind of God, but your election had not become a reality until you, moved by the Spirit of God, place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then your election, which was determined in eternity past, became a reality for you in the present. You with me? Heavy stuff, deep stuff, beloved. One writer says this, important stuff to understand. The sanctifying work of the Spirit has set these chosen ones apart for service, putting God's choice and purpose into effect. Beautiful. Beautiful. So God said, I determine 
to save this one, and my spirit will bring them in to that saving work. Now, looking back at the text, the elect are chosen in last phrase here for obedience to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? And for sprinkling with his blood. They were chosen for or elected for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. I believe this last statement reflects the great purposes or intended outcomes of election. Beloved, the elect of God are chosen by him that they might no longer live for themselves. I, man, we need to hear that over and over again. We need to hear that over and over again. But rather, for the Lord, who laid down their life to redeem them. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says there, And he, that is Christ, died for all, talking about all who have believed, that those who live in Christ might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Beloved, it is sin. It is our old, nasty, disgusting, rebellious, vile nature that keeps trying to draw us back to a self-serving, self-centered living where we live only for us, the Lord has called us and saved us and elected us that we might live for him, for him, for his glory, for his purposes, for his good that we might serve him. First Peter 2.9. And by the way, that means we serve him by coming under his word, okay? So everything there that it says concerning what we are to do as believers in Jesus Christ, we serve him by obeying that. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to serve him. I don't know. There's lots of stuff right here. Like, love one another and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and care for your spouse and sacrifice yourself. All of that, all of that is what it is to serve the Lord, to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. And it is the reason for which he sovereignly determined to save you. 1 Peter 2.9 Listen to this, but you are a, first thing he says, a chosen race. Uh, because of that choosing, because of what the Spirit of God has done, because of Christ, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set apart, that's what it means, unto God, a people for his own possession. Your God's own possession, that's amazing, beloved. He wanted to have you unto himself. But get this and don't miss it. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He chose you. He elected you. He called you unto himself that you might proclaim him, that you might make him known, that you might live for him. That's our calling, beloved. That is to be our Concern, our priority, our occupation, if you will. First Peter 1, 
again, just under this idea of obedience to Jesus Christ, and you'll see this obedience played out, as we talked about last time, as a theme in the book, letter of 1 Peter, but there in 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go back to your old way of living, sinful way of living. Don't do that. Your idolatry, your rebellion, don't do that. But as he who called you is holy, you also be what? Holy in what? All your what? Right. All of it. All of it. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Remember, who called you? God. Who elected you? Who chose you before the foundation of the world if you're a child? Who did that? God. And what is he? Holy. He called you to be his people and to reflect him to the world. Well, I'm con- I am convinced this is why often we're so frustrated because we are not fulfilling to one degree or another this calling. God chose you. He elected you for a purpose. And when you or I fight against that purpose... It doesn't go well. It doesn't go well for us. We won't feel right. We won't be right. We'll be frustrated. But when you live for him, for the reason that he elected you and chose you, there is a freedom in that. There is an energy in that. There is is something in you that says this is right. You know what I'm talking about? But sin makes us fools. And sin lies. I've said it before. And sin says, no, no, there's something else. Something better. There's nothing better. There is nothing better than to be the elect of God and living according to the purpose that God has called us. Okay? Bless you. And then you see that even in Ephesians 2.10. The Bible says, therefore, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? We were, we were determined to be saved in Christ for what reason? For good works, which God himself prepared beforehand, before the world was ever made, before we were ever created, that we should what? Walk in them, not talk about them. Walk in them. Do them. Live in obedience to him. And again, I've said this before, but good works is, you know, it's not, you know, this idea of, I'll do a good work today. I got to, you know, a good work is living unto the Lord and obeying his word. So a good work for you husbands is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. There it is. That's the good work. And you can do that every day. Huh? Yeah. Just, again, Edgar always takes advantage of those opportunities And I'm going to say it again, I give them on a regular basis, but Edgar's a very wise man, he's been around a long time, and he snaps on it. So guys, look for that, I'll maybe sit next to Edgar, he can like pinch your, he'll know when it's coming and he can pinch your leg and then, see, because his wife's happy, she's happy right now. Uh, Looking back again at the text real quick. The elect are chosen, we, we looked at it, for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
and for sprinkling with his blood. Sprinkling with his blood, we sang about blood this morning. That might sound like a, a, a strange thing to the modern ear. But guess what? That is exactly, this sprinkling people with blood, that is exactly what Moses did. You can read about this in Exodus 24. He did it at Mount Sinai with the nation of Israel when, listen, during the initiation of the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant, and after the people heard about God's word or law for them through the prophet Moses, and said, the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, they would do. So all of that law that was laid out before them, they said they would do it. Moses then sprinkled some of the blood of the sacrificed oxen, which he had also put on different places, altar and such. He sprinkled it on the people. He sprinkled it on the people. And one scholar put it this way, thereby, by doing that, bringing them into and sealing the covenant between them and God bringing them into and sealing the covenant between them and God through this blood sacrifice sprinkled on the people who uh, pledged their obedience to the Lord. Okay? Now, we don't live under the old covenant. We live under the... Yeah, new. Yeah, that's it, new covenant. Under the new covenant, beloved, that God promised... Uh, in that he would he would make with his people the new covenant. And by the way, let me tell you some of the benefits of the new covenant. Forgiveness of all of our sin. God remembers, chooses to not recall our sin ever again. He says he doesn't remember, but the idea is he, he makes a decision. I will not recall it again, ever. This is new covenant promises. God credits us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, his son. That's new covenant stuff. God offers us his rest. His rest. He gives us eternal life and he gives us his Holy Spirit. New covenant blessings. Unbelievable. That covenant is not entered into or sealed with the blood of an ox. But rather through and by the eternal blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As one uh, translation puts it, this verse in Hebrews 12, 24, saying to the believers there, you have come to Jesus. He is the go-between or the mediator of a new covenant. You have come to the sprinkled blood. Peter's just using that idea metaphorically. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ allowing us access into and confirming our part in the new covenant of God with all the blessings of that. No saving without the blood of Christ, my friends. It is the blood that secures the acceptance of every new covenant person before God. Now, as I look at that last part of verse 2, there's one translation, and I found it helpful as we just talked about everything. It put it this way. In First Peter, puts it like this. You have been chosen in keeping with what God the Father had planned. That happened through the Spirit's work to make you pure and holy before Him, set you apart for Him. 
God chose you so that you might obey Jesus Christ. He wanted you to be made clean by the blood of Christ. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. He hasn't even gotten to the letter yet. This is just the opening. This is just, he's speaking to his readers. He's, he's telling them these wonderful truths about them. No doubt reminding them of these truths that they already knew. And one writer commenting on that, one commentator says this, in view, remember the situation, remember the historical context, in view of the difficult situation they face, suffering, Peter's concern right out the gate is to emphasize in the most solemn, serious manner the supernatural vocation or calling of his correspondents, his readers, which should be their sheet anchor in their trials. The fact that they are chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and chosen for the purposes of obeying Him. I had to look up sheet anchor because that's an old term. Any nautical folks in here? Zippo, all right. Zippo, sheet anchor, it's just a cool word. It's an, it's an extra large, strong anchor that they put on a ship in case there's an emergency so they can throw that thing out and they won't lose the ship. The truth of our election, our calling, is, is like a sheet anchor. When the times get tough or difficult or you come under suffering, specifically as these readers were for their faith in Christ, they look back and they can say, I am chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And that means a lot. It means all the glories of salvation are mine, that God has put his love on me and called me out of this world, which is hostile to God. But he's called me out of it to be his end, to continue to live for him in spite of the difficult circumstances. Is that type of thinking and processing that allows you to hold up under the pressures of this very ungodly system that we find ourselves in currently. One writer says this, divine election reminds the readers that they have status. Beloved, there is no higher status. Huh? But listen, not because they are so worthy or noble. No. That's like how the world thinks. Look at me, you know? Look at my status. No. Not because they're so worthy or noble, but because God has bestowed his grace upon them, his saving grace. Hence, in the midst of that, thinking that through, they have the energy to counter accepted cultural norms and to live in accord with God's purpose. We look around, we we see the world, and we see what's going on, and we see what they accept, which is not acceptable to God, and we are allowed then or empowered or energized and reminded again that we have been chosen out of this world. We are the elect of God and we have been chosen that we might live for him in this world. This is not our home, beloved. And that becomes very clear when we look back at the text where it says in verse 1 now, looking back, we looked at that word elect, but now let's look at this other couple of words here. To those who are 
elect exiles of the dispersion. Dispersion, I talked about this last week. Uh, Literally, the word means through a sowing. That's literally what it means, through a sowing. So when you think of sowing, don't think of needle and thread. Think of a seed. You're sowing seed, and you, what do you do with the seed? You scatter the seed on the earth, okay? Scattered on the earth. So, so the dispersion, as I said, when it was used with the word the, definite article, the, the dispersion, when it was used with the word the, it was a standard Jewish way to refer to Jews living outside of their Palestinian homeland Uh, and who were a minority now, scattered among the Gentiles. Scattered. Okay? The dispersion. Scattered. The Jews are outside of their homeland, scattered among the Gentiles, and living there as a minority. You see that in John 7.35. But listen, Peter doesn't use the definite article with this word here. He doesn't use the word the. So the dispersion. And that's how it was used when he was used in that technical way. And that is why, if you look at other translations, it doesn't even show you that it's the word dispersion. It'll say scattered throughout. It doesn't say the dispersion. It just says scattered throughout. So New American Standard Bible says that. The NIV says that. And for reasons that I told you about last week, the consensus is is that Peter's readers are predominantly Gentile. They're Gentile. So that wouldn't even make sense. He's not using it in the technical way, because he's not referring to Jews that have been scattered among the Gentiles, removed from their Palestinian homeland, or had to leave because of persecution or war, so on and so forth. But listen, I believe that Peter may have used the word dispersion. He may have used it without the definite article, because not only is he capturing just the general idea of scattered throughout, but he's drawing in a little bit of those ideas that also that were applied to the Jewish people and that is that Christians also live outside of their true homeland and are scattered throughout this earth among unbelievers as a minority did you know you're the minority boy that's becoming more and more clear Certainly in the world, no doubt about it. Maybe at one time in the United States, I don't ever really. I think there were more people saying they were Christian, but that doesn't make it so. But certainly today, people aren't even saying that. They're saying the opposite. Why would we want to be Christian, you know? That's outdated. That's nonsense, so on and so forth. You feel like a minority as a Christian in this world? If you don't, then I don't know who, yeah. I mean, that... Where are you? Where are you? I want to know where you're hanging because that is the truth. So then the term dispersion then is likely being used to supplement the other term he uses to describe the readers, and that is the term exiles. Exiles. Exiles of the dispersion. And the NASB, as I showed you, another translation, translates that word, Greek word, exiles, it translates it as aliens. Aliens. Both exiles and aliens are good translations of the Greek word, and both communicate the same general idea. Okay? So an exile, give you a basic definition. An exile is one who is absent from his own country or living outside of their own country. Exile. An alien, not the extraterrestrial type, who theoretically uh, lives on another planet and will eventually make their way here, 
But an alien, in the basic sense, is a citizen of a country other than the one he or she is currently in. Okay? Now, look back at the text again. Peter says this, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The word elect in the sentence, and it is in this order, elect exiles. That is how it is in the original, even though I told you why the NAV, NIV and NASB move it around. That word elect is intended to modify the word exiles. Modify the word exile. So what is your point, Jeremy? Here's the point. The point is, is that Christians are exiles or aliens because they are elect. It's because God has chosen them. One writer says this, God's election is what accounts for their being exiles. They are not aliens literally. Hey, were you born? Okay, not everyone was. So, But if you were born in the U.S. of A., and this is your home country, your citizen here, right? Then you are not in the literal sense an alien living here. Not in that sense. But that is exactly, so there were people Peter was writing to, they would have been born right there. He's not saying, you know, you are somewhere where you weren't previously on the earth. He's not saying that. He's saying they are exiles or aliens because they have been elected by God because their citizenship is in heaven rather than on earth. See? You see how significant these these terms are for the readers? And I'll get to why that's important. Another anonymous work here dating back to the second century said this concerning Christians and their election. Listen, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by either country, speech, or customs. They reside in their respective country, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home, and every home a foreign land that is on earth. They find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but hold citizenship in heaven. I shared this passage last time when we looked at some of the themes, but here it is in John 15, 18 through 19. Jesus says this to his disciples, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I, what? Chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. One writer commenting on that says, As God's elect people, they formed a group separate and distinct from the world and subject to its hatred and persecution. In themselves, they were just ordinary people because that's what we are. We're not superior to our unsaved neighbors, not at all, but we are elect. And it is the initiative of God that has made us what we are or what they were. And therefore, we are exiles, aliens living on this planet. So, the writer of Hebrews says this concerning Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Sarah. He says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Then he says, now if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that God called them out of, and that's what they meant when they said they were exiles, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. You know, not Montana or Texas or something like that. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with those, but I'm just saying that's not the better country. That is a heavenly one, the writer says. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let me just kind of uh, capture all this real quick. Beloved, he's going to write to them about suffering, okay? They're suffering for their faith. He's going to call them in the midst of that to do what is right, to follow the Lord, to live in submission to Him, even to suffer, to not try to uh, necessarily try to get away from that because that is going to be a reality. So He doesn't call them to go looking for suffering, but the reality is for the people of God, they will suffer for their faith in Christ. They, why? Because they are aliens. They are living in a foreign land. This is not our home. And so, not only is it not our home, beloved, but we live among people who are, like we once were, hostile to God until God reached out and saved us. But that hostility is there among the people of God. So there there is going to be suffering for one's faith. That is, if one is living unto the Lord, for the Lord, which is the reason he chose you, elected you. But even in the midst of that, yes, I know I'm an exile. I know I'm an alien in this land, Peter. But then he says, you're elect exiles. You are what you are because God in his love and grace has predetermined to make you his own. He's left you on this earth for a time, but it's not forever, my friend, because he has a place for you. He has a home for you, for his people. When the Lord returns and remakes this world, this earth, new again, glorious, that is your home, and that is permanent and eternal. I chose you to be mine, and nothing and no one can change that. Hold on. Hold on and live for him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who sent his son to sacrifice himself, giving up his blood that you might be sprinkled in it and brought into the new covenant that God promise hold on i'm coming for you that's that's not all said there but that is there elect exiles don't be caught off guard that these things are happening to you they're going to happen because i chose you i called you i drew you out of the world i set you apart through my spirit I've called you for obedience to Jesus Christ and I have sprinkled you with the blood of my son bringing you into my new covenant. 
The world will hate you. They will despise you. But it will be a temporary thing. And then I will bring you unto myself. Beloved, our, our brother here is going to come up and lead us in communion just in a moment. Beloved, there's no doubt some folks here who have not bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who have not repented of their sins and turned to Him in faith. There's no doubt in my mind. Not because I'm thinking of any individual in particular, but because in a crowd this size, there are certainly some folks here who do not have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who need to come to Him in faith and call out upon Him in order to be saved from the wrath of God that is to come, as we read through and have been reading through Revelation. I, I would invite you, after this communion is celebrated among the people of God, if you're not part of us, become part of us. The Bible is clear, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we want to talk to you about that. Just to be clear, coming to church every Sunday does not make you a Christian. Growing up in a Christian family does not make you a Christian. Having a large Bible does not make you a Christian. But just in case I got one, no. No. No, because I. you become a Christian when you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. When you put your hope and trust in Him, and then God sprinkles you, the Father sprinkles you with His blood. And you are cleansed. We would invite you to come and talk to us. We would love to have that discussion with you. Help lead you in that direction. If that is where the Spirit of God is working in your heart even now. Brother, would you come on up and...